You're listening to The Solution, a podcast by Growers Mineral. I'm your host, Russell Bobel. In this ongoing series, we will be taking a look at the book More Food from Soil Science, a book written in 1965 by one of Growers' co-founders, Dr. V.A. Tejans. Chapter 8. The Farmer is Still a Pioneer in His Profession Not so many decades ago, tilling the soil to make a living in the United States was considered a menial job. To grow crops was considered a simple matter. If a man had a team of horses, a cow, 25 chickens, and a plow, he was prepared to support a family on a piece of cutover land. He cleared the land and started growing crops. He did not concern himself with fertilizers, limestone, government help, big machinery, or weed killers. His concern was to grow something to feed his own family and accumulate a little cash, which was banked in a cracked sugar bowl in the back corner of a cupboard or under the eaves. What things he needed to buy he often obtained by bartering eggs, poultry, potatoes, vegetables, and butter at the general store, located at the corner of a country crossroad. He had very little need for any appreciable amount of cash. Blue jeans, a Mackinac jacket, a fur-lined jacket, and a fur-lined cap in cold regions, and mittens, heavy shoes or boots, had to be bought at the general store. Today, some 100 or more years later, the farmer is or should become a big businessman. He has large investments in land, buildings, and machinery, and needs working capital or credit. Today, he is a specialist, and he no longer thinks only about his family. His need for cash means that he must get money to pay bills. However, he still farms and sells his produce on a supply and demand market. And if he wants to live at the same standard of living his unionized cousin in the steel mill enjoys, he must make a profit from his business. This involves a tremendous amount of knowledge. His dollar has shrunk and is worth much less than his cousin's dollar. He sells on a market where he takes what his cousin is willing to pay him for his meat, eggs, vegetables, and grain crops, while his cousin has his wages set for him by the local union. Where the farmer's hourly wage depends on his ability as a manager to sell his crops for more than it costs him to grow those crops, his cousin has no worry except to carry a union card. He needs brains and education to run his business, while his cousin needs muscle or skill in some trade to be able to perform his work. Of course, many farmers think that muscle is a pretty important adjunct to managing a farm, unless they have the money to buy labor-saving equipment. The federal government has decided to help the farmer because he can't make a profit from his business. For 20 or more years, we have had a farm program based on the idea that the farmer's prices should be raised to parity basis. The program in general has been a disappointment. It has returned some additional money to the farmer's pocket, but it has restricted his activities and it has fogged the real issues. We need more production to maintain a world food supply. Even though we have been producing surpluses which have demoralized our markets, the price of farm products is no higher than it was some 40 to 50 years back. Yields of farm crops have gone up only slightly, while costs have increased by leaps and bounds. Today, our farm population is decimated because the inefficient farmer has left the farm to go into industry. Every year we have more people leaving farms and those who remain have the job of feeding more and more people per acre of ground. 
Along with this, our federal and state advisory organizations have appeared less and less capable of lending a helping hand. Our economists, who should be leading the fanner out of the woods, seem to have gotten him deeper into the woods and have not been able to show him how to reduce his costs. The future for agriculture lies in a sound research program that will show the farmer how to get maximum yields on widely different soil types at a big reduction in cost in face of possible surpluses. Many people think it is possible to reduce our acreage and thus reduce our production of crops to the point where the demand exceeds the supply. Any plan for a program to help a farmer must be based on an understanding of his problems and his thinking. The workings of farmers' minds, like everybody else's, vary between wide limits. There are no two that think alike. Each one has a different idea, and, considered on a worldwide basis, it is impossible for minds to meet on common ground. But generally, they can be judged by what they accomplish. If one were to get acquainted with 100 farmers as he met them and catalog them as to how successful they were, he probably would find that 10 to 20 of those were making a good living every year regardless of the kind of soil they owned or what the weather conditions were. Then there would be a group of 30 to 50 who were less successful but were living comfortably. They would be making money some years and lose some in others. When you get beyond those, the people would be more suited to working for someone else. They were not making good wages for themselves. They listened to everybody and did not possess sufficient thinking power to know what was to their advantage and what was not. You probably would find college graduates among all of them. They might all have equally good land. They might have all the same acreage. Now, if you were to consider these different personalities and try to set up some government program, you would find some overly critical, some who didn't care, and some who took advantage of every opportunity to thwart the ideas of administrators to make the programs work. Besides this, there are the differences between a Vermont and a Kansas personality, a hill farmer, a prairie farmer, and a farmer from southern Florida. I doubt whether there is a program that will work all over. It is my opinion that the only solution to the farming industry from the standpoint of maintaining a worldwide food supply is to get the politicians out of the picture and let the farmers who can do this some constructive thinking work out a solution. Personally, I feel that if a farmer has something to sell, he can, by reducing his acre costs, find a way to maintain a fairly good standard of living. If he can't grow very much, his acre costs always will be high, and no matter how much he gets for his crops, he still won't make any profit. A sensible marketing program could solve our farm problems, but not until we gradually create in our farmers a more rational way of thinking. This probably will take a better educational program than we have today. We will have to get away from selfishness and adopt a more Christian attitude toward our neighbors unless we can come to some agreement among ourselves to control our marketing on some sort of self-imposed quota basis, perhaps by more severe grading and feeding a certain percentage to animals, we won't be able to prevent bad slumps in market prices. Otherwise, we may turn back to peasant farming, where the farmer has little to say about his own business. The farmer's main complaint is that it costs him more to grow the crop than he could get for it, 
In other words, high costs and low yield, low prices because of surplus production can cause him to lose his farm, regardless of support prices. Economists or other public agencies could help him regulate the movement of staple crops to market to maintain a uniform price, or the research man could show him how to increase his yields and lower his costs. In other words, he must produce corn at approximately 37 cents a bushel, so that when the price gets down to 50 cents, he can make 13 cents a bushel. If his costs are 75 cents a bushel, he naturally will lose money. The costs of growing a crop of corn, aside from the cost of fertilizer, is more or less fixed and is more or less the same whether 35 or 135 bushels are grown. Thus, it would seem that a simple solution is to increase yields. Some farmers have done this on sound advice. If, along with increased yields, the cost per acre can be reduced, so much the better. Many factors enter into this. However, it is worth the effort. Many of my growers have realized up to $75 an acre net profit in years when weather conditions favor a good yield. There is a general idea among crop research people that a 100-bushel corn crop so depletes the fertilizer that large quantities must be returned to maintain fertility. This has not been indicated in my experimentation on Ohio, Illinois, and New York state soils. It is one point on which I had to change my ideas radically after I finished college and came up against actual farm problems. Several experiments may be mentioned to show how the mental makeup of a farmer can have a tremendous bearing on his acre profits at the end of the year. We decided in New Jersey that there were many things which were hurting farmers' yields. We decided to conduct a farm survey on 132 farms in New Jersey, where market tomatoes were being grown. It costs considerably more to grow market tomatoes than canning tomatoes. The survey was conducted for three years. Each year, the results were the same. We found that fertilizer had very little effect. Too much manure reduced yields especially on high organic matter soils, because available calcium was too low. Aeration was quite important. The best yields came from the higher elevations and the lighter soils. The amount of limestone was correlated with higher yields, but costs were not correlated with anything. In very few cases did farmers make any profit beyond being paid for their labor. In other words, it was difficult to put your finger on any one thing that could account for a poor crop, except the lime content of the soil. The yield varied from 70 to 300 hampers per acre. Farmers had to pick up over 230 hampers to break even on costs. A friend of mine at the Michigan Experiment Station told me about a survey he made among raspberry growers. The yield per 1,000 square feet ranged from a few to many crates. I don't remember the number. The cost of growing, not harvesting the crop, varied from $0.37 cents to $2.32 a crate, and he could find no reason for so much difference. It could have been correlated with yield. He felt that the management of the beds had much to do with it. From these observations, I have concluded that our food production problem is not simply a matter of dumping on fertilizer. As a matter of fact, the need for fertilizer probably will play a minor role in our problem of feeding future generations. I do not say the plant food is not needed to grow 100 bushels of corn, but apparently it is coming from minerals in the soil, and we can continue to grow that crop year after year if we maintain calcium saturation of the soil at the proper level.
The plant food is made available through weather agencies every year, provided a satisfactory level of calcium is maintained. It makes sense to use this available plant food because if it isn't used for crop production, it probably will be lost by leaching or surface runoff, and eventually it will feed the fishes in the Gulf of Mexico rather than a crop of corn in Ohio. Countries growing insufficient food have given serious consideration to means of extending croplands through irrigation and increasing yields by means of fertilizer. No starting increase in food has resulted because, in many cases, the limiting factor or condition had been ignored. A proper evaluation of the reasons for low yields had not been made, so a remedy was not available. In my opinion, is that in every case, the first experiment should be exploratory. A series of plots should be initiated where varying amounts of pulverized limestone has been applied and thoroughly mixed with the soil. Fertilizer may be applied in cross strips depending on the type of soil. A check plot should be included, receiving no limestone and another receiving neither limestone nor fertilizer. In general, very little response will be seen from fertilizer the first few years, until the limestone has had a chance to become part of the colloidal complex. I would establish the plots by covering one acre of ground with 1 to 5 tons, another with 6 to 10 tons, another with 11 to 15, and 16 to 20 tons of limestone per acre if it is a heavy clay soil. In a sandy soil, 0, 1, 2, 3, or 4 tons may be enough. On a silt loam, 0, 2, 4, 6, and 8 tons should be applied. On a clay loam, 0, 5, 10, 15, and 20 tons. And on a muck or high organic matter soil, 0, 10, 20, 30, and 40 tons per acre should be used in acre plots. By making the plots an acre in area, they will be large enough should it be desirable later to superimpose fertilizer plots on the limestone plots. In tropical and semi-tropical areas, the soil acidity test is of little value in determining the lime needs of the soil. Since the calcium available to the growing crop is the important consideration, a calcium test should be developed and standardized against crop yields. The actual calcium needed to saturate the colloidal complex must be determined for each soil in the area. The purity of the limestone, its calcium and magnesium content, its fineness and hardness should all enter into the calculations determining the limestone needed in an acre foot of soil. If the soils are of acid origin, the calcium needed for three feet of soil must be determined. I usually determine how much is needed in an acre foot, then multiply by four, which gives me the amount of limestone needed, eventually to grow the maximum yield. On soils of limestone origin, the determination of calcium in the plowed layer may be sufficient. From these calculations, it may seem as though we are applying so much limestone that it would not be economical to grow a crop. The purpose is to saturate 85% of the colloidal soil complex with calcium. When we have accomplished this, we should not need limestone again for 10 or more years. Therefore, we don't charge the cost of the limestone against a crop in any one year. We can charge it against 10 crops at least, or consider it as part of the investment in land. In temperate regions, we have somewhat different conditions. The organic matter requires up to four times as much calcium to saturate it as a pound of clay. We have to take this into consideration in calculating the amount of limestone needed. 
temperatures likewise must be considered. They have an effect on the speed of reactions, which in turn have a bearing on the accumulation of negative charges. Very few of our soils the world over have come near the degree of calcium saturation of the colloidal complex necessary to get maximum yields when weather conditions permit. Because of the low yields due to inadequate calcium, the cost of growing the crop exceeds the value of the crop at harvest. In countries where labor is cheap enough, average yield adequately exceeds the cost of production, just as they did in the early days of our farm operation. There, crop growing becomes more of a means of livelihood than a bare existence. Much can be done through research when it is carried on by the people with the proper point of view. Research for the sake of accumulating knowledge has its place, but research that will help the farmer to raise his standard of living is more popular and is more readily supported by public funds. To get results that really show how to get bigger yields requires the efforts of someone with experience. We have wasted a lot of research money supporting studies of people who lack training and experience. They have very little idea about what it's all about. The proper unbiased point of view is very essential. The Earth's crust is well stocked with nutrients, which will remain there until some scientist finds out how to adjust the chemical and physical conditions to release them for plant growth. We have paid too little attention to this phase of the problem and too much to the idea that if a soil does not produce a good crop, fertilizer probably is needed. We also have large areas in Africa and South America waiting for a smart plowman to turn some furrows and reap a fortune. With the help of irrigation and the use of limestone, adapted varieties, and cheap labor, we can feed the world population for many years. I doubt whether fertilizers will be needed in appreciable quantities. Experiments, of course, should be initiated to determine whether appreciable quantities of fertilizer are necessary to produce top yields. Experiments conducted in the past without regard to the physical and chemical condition of the soil have contributed very little factual information to our knowledge of fertilizers. With a broad, unbiased approach, we can hope for much higher production levels at much lower costs. When Malthus set forth his doctrine on the world and food population, he did not reckon with the imagination of trained research men and smart farmers who are capable of reasoning out a possible solution from a collection of data. I have worked with farmers who do not have the advantage of a college education, but are better researchers than some college-trained men. Dry fertilizers, when applied in the soil, vary in availability to the plant. Available rainfall and soil moisture pretty well determine how much we can expect to get into the growing crop. The ingredients in dry fertilizers determine their availability. The condition of the soil with respect to lime, the amount of clay, and organic matter have a bearing. As a result of the insolubility of dry fertilizer in dry soil, I decided to try fertilizer solutions as early as 1931. I used a 510-5 dry fertilizer, dissolved what I could in water, and compared it with plots with the dry 510-5. It gave me answers to many of our fertilizer problems far different from what most agronomists are willing to admit. Unfortunately, the greater efficiency of the solution over the dry fertilizer was not attractive to fertilizer sales and research has not kept up with its use. 
It has so many possibilities that I expect to see its use increase in popularity, and because of its efficiency, it will play the major role in the growing of crops in the future. The fact that it can be handled by pumps and pipes, just as the other liquids are handled, is the major factor in its adoption as a main source of plant nutrients. Also, it has been used as a foliage spray on all crops, and small quantities have increased yields appreciably. Thanks for listening, everyone, to this episode of The Solution. If you'd like to learn more about the Growers Program or anything you heard in this podcast, visit our website at growersmineral.com. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Thanks. We'll see you guys in the next episode.